Right now, there are 245 million Christians who are facing high or extreme levels of persecution. Put another way, that's one in 10 Christians globally who are persecuted. That means tonight, if you love Jesus, and I'm sure most of you in the building do, that you're the other nine. You're part of that stat. You are involved. One in 10 Christians globally persecuted for loving Jesus. Now, the New Testament tells us that as Christians, as the church, we're part of God's family. We're part of God's body to amazing word pictures that are given to us. And that kind of means for us, I just want to unpack that really simply quickly tonight. That means we're meant to be, as the church, a tight, connected, committed unit. We're meant to be committed to one another. And as the body, when one part suffers, we're all meant to suffer. Put another way, when the foot is kicked, the mouth speaks. When the foot is kicked, the mouth speaks. And we as the church in the United Kingdom, you as the church here in Cheltenham, you're meant to be the mouth. You're meant to be the mouth. You're meant to be able to speak up, to pray, to give, to seek justice for your family, for the body around the world that is broken tonight. Just a couple of weeks ago, really, a few weeks ago, the foot was brutally kicked in Sri Lanka. You'll have watched it on the news or on the news news feeds on the internet. 350 Christians went to church to celebrate the hope of the resurrection of Jesus, and they never made it out of church. And you know what? The world woke up. Mainstream media caught attention of that particular incident. The world woke up and they woke up to the truth of this, that those Christians were targeted for one reason and one reason alone, and that is because they were Christians. And you know what? The UK government is waking up. Back in January, we launched something called the Open Doors World Watch List in Parliament. It's like the, the league table. I think Man City won the league today in, uh, in, in, in England. But this is the league table, the grim news league table, if you like, of the 50 most dangerous places to be a Christian. And we launch it in Parliament every year. And Jeremy Hunt, the Foreign Secretary, turned up and he spoke at it. The politicians are waking up. Parliamentarians are waking up in the UK to the fact that there is this rise and escalation of persecution against Christians. And do you know what? The even better news is, is that the church is waking up. The church is really getting this idea that when the foot is kicked, the mouth speaks. And that's why we're so grateful to Andrew and the team here at Trinity for letting us be here today. Henrietta, my boss, was here speaking this morning. And then it's just so good to be here tonight to kind of share a bit about this whole idea that we're family and we've got so much to learn from each other. As a kid, I was, used, I was very embarrassed by my grandma. My grandma, she was an absolute legend, but there were certain things about my grandma that really embarrassed me. My grandma was one of those people that wore a Jesus Saves pin badge. It was a green metal pin badge that she used to wear on her coat. But my grandma didn't stop there. She had shopping bags with Bible verses on her shopping bags. So we'd walk around the streets and there she was holding her shopping bags with Bible verses on. She didn't stop there. Oh no, she had Bible verses all over her car. Okay, so she'd drive around in a little metro. Some of you probably don't even know what a metro was. But back in the 80s, there were these little cars and she used to drive around with Bible verses on her car. She didn't stop there. Oh no, my grand, she would litter for Jesus. Okay, she would pop tracks on buses, park benches, trains. Wherever she went, she would kind of really be passionate about sharing the gospel. She was sold out for Jesus. 
Nearly in every conversation, she would weave Jesus into the conversation. And I, as a little kid growing into my teens, I was quite embarrassed by this. I would cringe at times. But you know what? Looking back, I love my grand for it. I love the fact that she had a story of courageous faith. I love the fact that she was so, so sold out for Jesus. that she had this such, a, such an urgency to see people saved. She was just willing to sort of uh, lose face and just drop him into conversations. But I have to tell you this too. She lived a life of immense generosity. And she loved people into the kingdom as well as speaking words into their lives. You know, if we're honest, and if I'm honest, I look at my own life and I kind of think it's really difficult sometimes to follow Jesus. It's really difficult to share faith. And maybe some of you feel like that tonight. Every one of us is finding it more and more difficult to follow Jesus. It's hard to know when to speak up, how to speak up. And oftentimes when we do, we can feel like we've let God down or we're a bit of a failure. We're not good enough. I've got the answer for you tonight or a bit of an answer for you tonight. And I want to introduce you to people who really get what it means to follow Jesus in our culture or in this 21st century culture. And they're the persecuted church. They're the persecuted church. They're people who've really figured out how to follow Jesus when it's really tough. And you know what? If we kind of learn from them and use them as our guides, we can perhaps become the courageous Christians that we've longed to be. I don't know about you, but I long to be a courageous Christian. And I truly believe that the persecuted church can teach us how to walk the ways of Jesus today. And you know what's really incredible is that actually they need you too. They need you too. For them to fully write and live out their story, they need you. And for you to really live yours You need the persecuted church. You need an encounter with the persecuted church. Let's just read a bit of a passage of scripture together, a well-known piece of scripture in Philippians chapter 3, written by Paul in around AD 61, 62. This was a guy who fully knew the cost of living for Jesus. He wrote these words in prison under house arrest in Rome. So let's read these together. Either turn to it or just follow on screen. Philippians chapter 3, verses 5. To 11. I was circumcised when I was eight days, eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless, rubbish, because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with him depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another, I'll experience the resurrection from the dead. You know, the first three quarters of that passage is uh, is almost Instagram worthy. It's almost Christian poster worthy. It's almost up there with a cute kitten poster that's sort of plastered with Jeremiah 29, verse 11. And then the final section just gets a bit awkward. There's quite a lot of mention there, isn't it, of suffering and death. And maybe as some of us read those words, we're a bit like, actually, Jesus, this isn't really what I've signed up for. I'm not sure about that. There's so much suffering involved. It sounds like there's a price tag attached. 
And there kind of is. There kind of is. Because scripture has a running theme through it that actually there is a cost to following Jesus. And I think to live out courageous faith, to live out courageous faith, we need to get our head around some thoughts. So I've got three thoughts I want to share with you tonight on how you, and I'm talking to myself as well, how you and me can be the courageous Christians that we've longed to be. Maybe some of you think, I am pretty courageous actually. Well, if you are, take this as an encouragement, lean into this and be spurred on and press into, into that. Okay. The first thought I want to share with you is this. Embrace the idea that faith is costly. Embrace the idea that faith is costly. You know, courageous faith has always been costly. Just read your Bibles. Just read the New Testament. It's not exactly a popular message, is it, in our, in our culture today. We'd rather settle for the, for the smiling, happy Jesus. He kind of gives us everything we want when we need it. Kind of, in that kind of sense, we kind of make Jesus a mix between Santa and Superman. That isn't the Jesus that we're presented with in the Bible. That isn't real deal Christianity. You know, costly faith, courageous faith. That was the story of the early church, and it was Paul's story. He lived that. Courageous faith is costly. He counted the cost of following Jesus. You know, the call on our lives as followers of Jesus today here in Cheltenham, here in the United Kingdom, is to share in Jesus' suffering or potentially share in that suffering and cost. It doesn't make it on the classic Christian poster or some Instagram post or maybe even some of the modern worship songs. But the way of Jesus is the way of suffering. There is a call to it. You know, for the early church, they were first called Christians as a term of derision. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before. If you read the book of Acts, there's just a slightly throwaway verse that says, and, the Christ- and, and followers of Jesus, followers of the way, were first called Christians in Antioch and Syria. You can read it in Acts chapter 11. And actually, it was a term of derision. The Romans were just like little Christ, and they just derided and mocked the first followers of Jesus. And you can see that from the way Paul wrote. And he wrote not just Philippians, but he wrote 13 out of the 27 New Testament books that he fully embraced and he lived this, that Jesus was worth more to him than anything else that he had. And, you know, before he encountered Jesus on the way to Damascus, Paul had a really comfortable life. He had power, he had status, he had been so highly educated in the, in, in the Jewish religious elite. He had it all. And yet he threw it all away, you might say, when he encountered Jesus and his life was turned upside down. He knew the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord, for whose sake he discarded everything else. You know, in the context of Paul's culture under the Roman Empire, Caesar was declared to be Lord. And there was unswerving loyalty to Caesar was was the order of the day. And yet for these early Christians, they lived counterculturally. And they said, no, there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus. And around the world today, there are belief systems that demand unswerving loyalty. And yet there are Christians who are willing to stand up and say, no, there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus. And the fact is, we face opposition in our culture too. Might not be persecution on the same level as our brothers and sisters around the world today, but we have choices every day to say, are we going to make Jesus Lord or not? Unswerving loyalty to Jesus. You know, as I said, you read the New Testament and you speak about suffering and cost. The New Testament was written by persecuted Christians, writing to persecuted Christians. That was the context that they lived under, and that's the context that the New Testament was, was kind of birthed under as well. And we know from the New Testament and wider history that the early church, they were flung to the lions. They were burned at the stake. And we also know from wider history that Paul was was assumed to be beheaded a few years after writing this passage of scripture in Philippians. 
Discipleship involves sacrifice, hardship, cost, and a call to shine brightly. But you know what? That's the kind of faith that changes the world for Jesus, even if it costs us everything even our lives. You know, courageous faith has always been costly, and it still is. At Open Doors, we shine a light on persecution. We shine a light, and we kind of share the, the global state of play around the world. And that's a, that's a really important thing that we do. And we're kind of showing that pretty much wherever you live for Jesus, there is opposition for following him. There is a cost. Already you know tonight, because I've said it, 245 million Christians face extreme persecution. And the, the, the research that we do through the Open Doors World Watch list and the work that we do on the ground in over 60 countries where persecution is hitting the body of Christ, where persecution is hitting the family, is kind of showing that this, this scale and scope of it is unprecedented. And there is this global shrinkage in the freedom space to be a Christian. And actually, Jeremy Hunt, quite recently, is a kind of launched a review on persecution against Christians and kind of the, the initial findings are kind of showing that all the stuff that Open Doors has been talking about for many, many years is, is really being verified and backed up. We're also highlighting the persecution of, 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 of Christian women and the fact that often for women around the world, millions of women, persecution is hidden, it's complex and it's violent and they're facing something called double vulnerability. They're persecuted because of their gender and their faith. It's like this double whammy. And tonight I could tell you loads of stories. I'm just going to tell you some very, very quickly. I could tell you about Saima, a Christian law student in Pakistan who dreamed of representing the rights of women in her country. But like nearly 700 other young girls in her, her country, every year, Saima was coerced, kidnapped and raped. And her family didn't know where she was for days until they finally heard that she'd been forced to convert to Islam and marry her captor. I could tell you about the young boy in Egypt who, who ran home from school crying, saying to his mum that he wished he could be like the other kids in his class who followed a different religion. He'd been sidelined and singled out by his teachers. He was about seven years old. I could tell you about the families in North Korea, the most dangerous place on earth to be a Christian right now, who have to keep their faith hidden from their children. Teachers will often ask students, go home and see if your parents read from a little black book. If they do, they'll never see their parents again. I could tell you about the 13-year-old girl in India who was passionate about her faith in Jesus and she was invited to tea by her neighbour who feigned interest. At her neighbour's house, she was given drug tea and raped by the woman's two sons. I could go on. There are over 245 million stories like this. These are hard stories to hear, but they're harder to live. And that's why we at Open Doors are passionate about shining a spotlight on the persecuted church, shining a light on their story, but also the incredible story that even in the darkness, God is very much at work. Do you know, I want to encourage you tonight, if you've ever been laughed at, sidelined, or thought weird or odd for being a Christian and been embarrassed by that, you are in good company. Because friends, the story of courageous faith is a story that has been this part, of, part of the deal of being a Christian from, from the inception of the church back in the New Testament. It is a story of cost and courage, courageous Christianity, courageous faith. And I think the challenge for us is to kind of embrace that, to be willing and able, not to say, oh, no, I, I, I'm looking for it, I want it, but actually that is just to recognize that it's potentially part of the package of being a follower of Jesus, this idea of costly faith. The second thought I want to share with you tonight is this, is that you have a choice. You can choose costly faith or comfortable faith. You have a choice. Now, I think 
And I don't, I don't, I'm not pointing a finger at anyone tonight, because like I say, I'm, I'm speaking as much to myself, my peers around me, people who I do life with in my church in Whitney, and, and, and you guys tonight. And it's a challenge for us to just really take stock of and to maybe reflect. It's really easy, I think, to live as a Willy Wonka Christian. By that I mean it's so easy to have your golden ticket in your hand and do nothing with it. And, to, and the truth is tonight, you can leave here tonight and perhaps not really change, not really live a, a life differently, live courageous faith out. Um, for a lot of us, we've got eternity in the bag. Um, but as for the rest of your life, you know, the, the kind of uh, Monday to Saturday, it's like we kind of keep Jesus in a box. We kind of keep him on a leash. It's kind of, um, it's like kind of living as G with Jesus as your backup plan. And I think for a lot of us in the UK church, that's kind of what, what we're doing. Because after all, it is so easy to settle for a comfortable, safe faith. And actually, I think we've got this daily battle. I've got this daily battle. You've got this daily battle. Am I going to choose comfortable faith? Or am I going to follow and embrace this idea of costly faith? A pastor from Egypt said this, and Egypt is number 16 on the Open Doors World Watch list this year. He shared that how as Christians, whether, whether you live under persecution or whether you live in relative freedom, he said we're all in a battle. And I love that, actually, that, that there isn't us and them, that actually we're kind of in this together. There is only one church after all. And he said, like, there's this clash of kingdoms, isn't there? We've got the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of this world. And, and at, at this moment in time, the battle rages. And the Egyptian pastor said, this. He said, we persecuted Christians. We are hit with the stick of persecution while you face the carrot of comfort. Pretty sobering stuff, isn't it? You face the carrot of comfort. And let's be honest, and I'm, I'm totally like this. All too often we cave in to comparison. We're enticed by entitlement and we crave comfort. We we're lulled and lured to be lethargic and apathetic. And I've got this question for you. Are we falling asleep and in our slumber missing the challenge and the call to be the people who stand up for our faith and be all in for Jesus, to be courageous Christians? I remember a pastor from Syria saying this, and this is quite amazing, with all that they've gone through since the conflict, since 2011. The war was a gift, he said. It made us wake up to reality that humanity is lost without Jesus. With so much on the line, there is no halfway commitment to Jesus. I love that. There is no halfway commitment to Jesus. You know, the persecuted church is a gift to us. And I, the reason why I say it's a gift to us, because they're like a mirror. Um, they reflect back to us what true commitment to Jesus should look like. No halfway commitment. No being lulled and lured to be apathetic and lukewarm. God's looking for us to be really on it for him, to be front and center living for Jesus, to choose costly faith over comfortable faith. You know, it would have been so easy for 15-year-old Leah Sharabu from northern Nigeria to choose comfortable faith over courageous faith. We've got a picture of her on screen. So I'd love to tell you about Leah. She's been missing for over a year. Last February, February 2018, Leah went to school, but she never made it home. She was taken along with 100 other girls from her school. Boko Haram, you might have heard of them, a terror group that has sort of ravaged northern Nigeria for the past few years, basically turned up with trucks outside her school. They, they came and were armed with weapons, with guns, and they basically herded these girls off, and 100 of them went, and Leah Sharabu was, was one of them. And she really loves Jesus, and she was given the opportunity to be freed about a month later. 
but she refused because she refused to renounce her faith in Jesus and convert to Islam. She, she just basically chose to follow Jesus above everything else, kind of echoing that bit of scripture we read from Philippians chapter 3. Leah sent this message to her mum, and I think it's really um, amazing, the words that she said. I know it's not easy missing me, but I want to assure you that I'm fine where I am. My God, whom you, we've been praying to, is showing himself mighty in my trying moment. I know your words to me during our morning devotions that God is very close to people in pain. I'm witnessing this now. I'm confident that one day I, sh I shall see your face again, if not here, then in heaven. She's 15 years old. She's embracing courageous faith, courageous faith, costly faith over comfort and, and, um, and, and ease, living out what Paul said in Philippians 3. I want to know Christ and share in his sufferings. The third thought I want to share with you, you'd be good to know, I've only got three points. The third thought is this, is that courageous faith is worth it. Courageous faith is worth it. And it's worth it for two reasons. The first one is this, it brings you proximity to Jesus. It brings you proximity to Jesus. There's a deep truth that I think we often miss in our comfort culture, is that when faith costs, you encounter Jesus in a more vivid, deep way. To suffer with Christ, that's a powerful concept. That's what Paul was writing about in Philippians 3 there. To suffer with Christ, identifying with so closely with Jesus at the sharp end. And there's this crazy paradox, which again, I think we all too often miss, is that in the place of suffering, it is possible to experience this incredible level of proximity and intimacy with Jesus like never before. And you're talking about encounters with Jesus in your series at the moment. And again, it's not like we're saying, Jesus, I'm, I'm going to be on that front list to be persecuted. But... There's this great truth, this mystery that in the, in, in the place of pain and suffering, it is possible to experience Jesus so deeply. It's why my amazing friend, Hey Wu, who some of you heard last summer at New Wine, and some of you maybe even heard her at Trinity, this tiny little lady with a giant heart for Jesus could say in, in a North Korean prison camp, in prison I saw the worst of humanity, but I saw the best of Jesus. Incredible. A few years back, I came across a story of 23 South Korean missionaries who had been kidnapped in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan is just behind North Korea on the Open Doors World Watch list. It's the second most deadly, dangerous place to be a Christian. And these, 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 they were basically working as NGOs, working um, as charity workers. And there they were, they had been kidnapped by the Taliban. And they knew that potentially they were going to be killed for their faith. And they, they were able to spend one last moment together before they were going to be separated into maybe groups of three for what they thought was, was going to be their death. And one of the ladies incredibly had a Bible on her. The Taliban had pretty much confiscated everything. But she, she must have been pretty sassy and courageous because she somehow had kept this Bible on her. And as the 23 gathered together, they stood in a circle and she started ripping up her Bible in 23 pieces. I kind of feel sorry for the person that got Leviticus. But I'm sure, I'm sure if they had Genesis or something, they really encountered Jesus through that. But anyway, there they were and she separated out the chunks of scripture and with the idea that in a relative moment of safety perhaps they could just feed on God's words and so that's what she did and then the senior sort of leader amongst them I think he'd be, he was like the senior pastor he basically said look we're going to die a lot of us are going to die for our faith we're not going to make it home and basically around the circle they just like surrendered their lives to Jesus they they embraced this idea of courageous costly faith and one at a time they just cried out Jesus whatever brings you most honor my life is yours if it brings you more glory that they kill me kill me 
me. If it brings you more honor that I live, I live. So yeah, then the senior pastor in the circle said, look, we're going we're gonna to be killed. Some of us are going to be killed, but I'm going to die first because I'm the pastor. And then another one said, no, 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 I'm, I'm older than you. I'm going to die first. So they kind of had this crazy ding dong around the circle about who was going to be martyred first. Crazy scene. But here's the thing. Sometime after this ordeal, some of the survivors met in South Korea and they said this. In pits guarded by the Taliban, I was so close to Jesus, I wish I was still there. Can you believe that? In pits guarded by the Taliban, I wish I was so close to Jesus, I wish I was still there. And courageous faith is worth it because it not only brings you proximity to Jesus, it changes you and it changes other people. It changes other people. And that is what being a follower, a disciple in the 21st century is still meant to be. That we're meant to spread, we're meant to multiply, we're meant to be really, really infectious. Courageous faith sees stuff happen. I hope you'll humor me and let me just share one final story with you tonight. I want to share with you a story that brings us home uh, like nothing else, really. I want to tell you Rebecca, Etty, and Ratner's story. And they're from Indonesia. Indonesia is now number 30 on the Open Doors World Watch list, one of the largest Muslim countries on earth. And uh, they lived in a, a place called Indramaya, West Java. Go and Google Maps later, and you can, I love it, you can go and discover exactly where these places are. And Rebecca, the lady kind of in the stripy top, she was like the leader of this church community. They only had about 30 people in their church. And um, they would walk to and from various church, church activities, and they would meet street children. And they discovered that these, these were the kids of prostitutes and street vendors in their, in their community. And over time, you know, they would just get to know these kids, befriend them. And then Rebecca and the other two women, and had an idea they were like why don't we start a club for these kids so Rebecca was a doctor and she she thought you know we could also do some health education and just just kind of holistically kind of help these kids and also tell them stories about Jesus so she got permission from the from the local health and education authorities and and so they started a midweek club and they called it the happy Tuesday club what a great name. So the Happy Tuesday Club kicked off, and the parents were really happy for their kids to go. They got a decent meal. They had fun. They, and they were happy, really, to, for their kids to hear about Jesus, stories of Jesus. So that was great. So for a few months, the Happy Tuesday Club was just thriving, and it was just a beautiful thing that was going on in this community. But the local fundamentalists clocked what was going on. They could see that the Christians were being a bit more visible in their community and they were really ticked off. And then they got really angry and outraged about what was happening. And so they, they basically got these three women arrested. And there was, a, there was a show trial where 500 sort of screaming fanatical radicals were standing in the back of the court crying for the, these women's, women's blood. And three they were before three judges and they were sentenced for five years for the Christianization of children, essentially kids workers, Sunday school teachers. And so they were sent to prison, the local prison where there was 400 male prisoners and nine women prisoners. And the women, women's prison block was called Prison Block Juanita. And the nine women, women prisoners there were crazy. They were dysfunctional. They were killers. They were jihadist drug smugglers. Kind of, they were locked up because they kind of needed to be. And so this is where Rebecca, Etty, and Ratner were placed. On the first day of their imprisonment, and they, could, they walked into prison block Juanita, and it was covered in, in excrement and urine. It was just a, like, an uninhabitable place. God spoke to Dr. Rebecca, and she asked for buckets of water and disinfectant. And for that first day of their imprisonment, the three women cleaned prison block Juanita. 
They started sharing their food with these women who were so dysfunctional they couldn't even cook for themselves. After about week one in prison, uh, one of the prison guards went up to Dr. Rebecca and he said, look, I've, I've, I know you're a doctor and you're not really allowed to practice anymore, but, but can you help me? So she started to help him. By the end of the first month in prison, about 40 prison guards were going to see Dr. Rebecca for medical advice. At the end of the third month of being in prison, the prison governor called the women into his office and he said, you know, I, I, th I was informed that you were subversives and I was going to crush your heart and your mind the moment you came here to this prison. But you know what? You've been nothing but a help to this entire place. So the prison governor says this, how would it, how would it be if your church came to prison on a Sunday? The church comes to prison on a Sunday. So for the next few years, these women, these three women, these Sunday school teachers, basically they, they, they plant fish farms, they plant gardens. It's like, you know, they do so much in this prison, just loving, loving people like Jesus did. They loved the lost causes, the haters, the losers, the lonely. They, they were just loving people like Jesus did. And then after two, two and a half years of their imprisonment, the president of Indonesia gave them an amnesty. Partly because people like you, people like me, we prayed hard, probably people like Josie, we wrote letters, we opened doors, encouraged people to write letters to the president of Indonesia to speak up and advocate for these women. And that kind of, it works when we speak up. When the foot is kicked, the mouth speaks, and that, they're two examples of what we can do to pray and speak up. And so two and a half years early, these women were set free. Can you guess, though, what they did on their first week of freedom? That Sunday, they went back to prison because in those two and a half years, 47 people had come to faith and the church had grown and flourished. They went back to continue discipling the people that had come to faith. The cost was worth it. The cost was worth it. Courageous faith not only changes us, it changes others. Now we're going to land. You'll be pleased to know. You know, some people think the persecuted church is really grim and really depressing. On one level... There is so much oppression and injustice and suffering that it's quite hard to get our heads around it. And that's why we need the Holy Spirit to give us his compassion to see them as family and, and, and part of the body. But you know what? I don't. Because I think it's just remarkable to see that there are Christians willing to give everything for Jesus. And they show me what courageous faith looks like. You know, the persecuted church is actually one of the most hope-filled things on earth it's where light breaks through the darkness. It's where faith overcomes fear. It's where grace reigns over suffering. And in the most unlikely of circumstances, courage is born. Courage is born. And the truth is that you're part of that church tonight. We're part of this courageous faith journey, you and I. And um, we desperately need each other. It's a two-way thing. Without you, the persecuted church can't finish their story with a body, with a family, when the, when the foot is kicked, the mouth speaks. We, we're there to love them and serve them. And without them, you can't fully thrive and live yours. That's the challenge. In a moment, I'd love to pray for you, pray for myself, that we would be people that embrace this idea of courageous faith, that we wouldn't just settle for, for comfortable faith, to be lukewarm and apathetic, that we would just be able to kick back against our culture. And um, I'd love you to keep praying for the persecuted church. You know, I've said earlier that people are waking up to the fact 
that this is happening around the world. Continue to wake up to that and pray with persecuted Christians. Pray that they would continue to be bold and remain faithful. That is actually what they so often ask us to pray, that they would be bold and remain faithful. You know, as you head into this week and into the rest of 2019, you're going to face challenge and opposition that's going to lure you back to settle for a comfortable faith over costly faith. And that's why... You need the persecuted church. That's why I need the persecuted church. Maybe as you came in, you got given a leaflet. And I'd love you to subscribe to these stories of courageous faith. A really simple way is kind of follow us on social media um, at Open Doors UK. Would love you to do that. Just be reminded to be nudged. Would love you to sign up for the emails. And you can do that. Get a monthly email just to be reminded about what's going on and see these stories of courageous faith. So you can help them in their story and they can help shape yours. And maybe some of you think, actually, I'd like to do a bit more more than that. I'd like to give. I'd like to practically respond to the survival and growth of, of, the, of the church in the most costly, dangerous places. I'd love to see courage born and strengthened. And you can do that. And one idea is that you could match a subscription in your life, maybe your Netflix or your Spotify. You could do that and give to the persecuted church through open doors around the world. And if you'd like to do that, again, look at the form. I'll be standing at the back. Come and see me. And I know from my own life, my own walk with Jesus, I've been really shaped by, by the persecuted church because they've really shown me Jesus and helped me to encounter Jesus a lot more. Maybe if you're willing and able, let's just stand together and, uh, and I'll pray before handing back. Do you know there's a massive difference between knowing of Jesus and knowing Jesus? And uh, and those words that we read from Paul in Philippians 3 said, I want to know Christ. And I don't know about you, but I really want to know Christ. And I pray that for for you and myself tonight, my friends here at Trinity God, that we would be people that know you, Christ. That we would know you deeply and intimately. We would feed on your word, would spend time with you, would get to know you, Jesus. We'd have these incredible encounters with you, Jesus, that would just shape our life. And Lord, we want to... um, just stand with our family around the world tonight, those who are, are just um, really intensely and extremely persecuted for you. And we thank you for their story, God. We thank you for their courage. And we do pray with them tonight. We pray that they would remain faithful until the end, that they would, they would just really feel a, a supernatural comfort and joy even as we pray tonight, that you would lift those, those spirits of people in, in forgotten places. Thank you that you are the God who sees. And thank you that their story is actually our story that it isn't us and them, that there is only one church and it's, it's your body, it's your family, Jesus. And we're so utterly privileged to be a part of that. And we say thank you. And I uh, do pray for us that we would have increased courage and boldness and the ho- you, Holy Spirit, would just fill us up to be able to go into this week, to go in 20, into 2019 and the years ahead to live for you, Christ, and to make you known. Because uh, we know that a broken world desperately needs us to do that. Amen. Oh man, thanks so much, Emma. So we're going to stay in this um, place of just responding and seeing what God might want us to to do in in response um, through his Holy Spirit. So it it could well be, as the band uh, come up, that you felt really challenged by some of the stuff that Emma's been showing this evening. Maybe maybe it's that that fresh challenge to step out in courageous, courageous faith. And, and not just in a in a kind of 
our, our Western world lives is a bit uncomfortable sometimes, but in a real significant, courageous way. Or, or maybe, maybe it, it, it's that you, you really want God to break your heart for the persecuted church in a fresh way. And if, if either of those two things or, or anything else that's kind of come up as, as Emma's been sharing kind of resonate with you, then we'd love to invite you to, to come forward. Um, and we do that for two reasons, not because it's magical or anything, but first of all, um, I don't know about you, but I often find that I can make decisions in church about what I'm going to do as a result um, the next day. And then if I don't do anything about it in that moment, then I forget. And so we find that that coming forward, stepping forward to the, to the front of the room is just a sign between you and God of a physical act of moving forward, of saying, I'm going to respond to what you've been doing in this moment. And secondly, it, it allows someone to come alongside you and to pray, because we believe that that's important and significant. So... If you if you feel like you want to respond to either of those things, then I'm just going to invite you to just come forward now. There's plenty of space here where where we can pray with you. So so don't be shy, be courageous, and and come forward if you if you want to be prayed for for those things. And or it could be that there's just another thing that you just came this evening with a a need to be to be met with Jesus, to, to have him move in your life. And there's something that you just think, actually, before I can go any further into next week, I just need someone to come alongside me and pray. So if any of those things are, are healing or, you know, we were singing about miracles earlier, if there's a miracle that you need in your life, then there's time and there's space now for you to, to respond, come forward and, and allow someone to pray with you.